0: Good evening, we're going to be singing out of the uh, blue Psalter hymnal tonight, and we're going to start off with, what number? What number? We're going to start with number three. We're going to sing one, two, and four of number three. So we'll be singing number 301. We'll sing all four of 301. Back toward the front of the book, Uh, number 22, When in the Night I Meditate. We'll sing all five of number 22. One more, we'll go to 221, The Lord unto his Christ has said, and I think we have time to do all three of those as well. Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. When we think about what God has done for us and how he has gathered us by his strength, how can we not sing joyfully and shout in praise of God that we might do this well in a manner that's fitting? Let's join our hearts together in a moment of silent prayer. Father, there is so much that could distract us, could turn our hearts and our minds away. But you are worthy our full attention and our heartfelt praise. So we pray that you would so work within us that we would be able to give you the attention and the worship that you deserve. And that when you send us from this place, we might go with a song of praise on our lips and a confession of your goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Hear now His greeting. Grace and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us sing praise together to him from number 155 in our Psalter Hymnal. 155, we'll sing the first five stanzas. It is our distinct privilege to join with God's people throughout the world in confessing the truth He has revealed about Himself. So, using the words of the Apostles' Creed, congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Our psalm reading this evening is Psalm 119, starting at verse 49, continuing through verse 64. In uh, in these two sections, we find a reminder of where our identity should be found, where our focus should be placed. The first stanza reminds us that we can often be distracted by those who hate God, those who uh, persecute His people. But in the face of that, he confesses that his hope, his trust, his confidence are found in the praises of God and in his law. That's what what identifies him. That's what focuses him. That's what allows him to be encouraged despite the persecution and the ugliness of the world. And then the next section, he makes the confession that it's not his deeds and it's not the things of the world that take center stage for him. It is the law of God. It it is the promise of God. It is the people whom God loves, with whom he's surrounded us. Folks, that's a confession we need. There is so very much that vies for our attention, that seeks to get us worked up and distracted. And some of that stuff's really important. But at the end of the day, our focus needs to be on God. Our identity needs to be found in God. Our hope needs to be drawn from the word of God. And if it's not, that other stuff will loom so large that it will overwhelm us. But if the Lord is always in our vision, if his promises are always filling our heart, those other things will be put in proper perspective. We'll deal with them. We'll address them. We'll understand them but in the light of God's sovereignty. And so they won't overwhelm us. They won't bring us down. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on, the ways, on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O oh Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Amen. Let us take up the first of those two stanzas. We find that in Selection G of Psalm 119 from our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 119G. As we come to the Lord in prayer, just a couple of additional matters you see in your announcement bulletin, uh, prayer for the uh, church plant called Ventura Reformed in Ventura, California, and the work of uh, Reverend Colostian. Um, that's a fledgling work. It's relatively small. They're doing a lot of you know, studies with folks outside the church seeking to draw them in, um, That's hard every person comes in with baggage every person comes in with uh with struggles and with the need for discipleship but God is calling in his people and what a blessing that is so we need to pray for them um in addition just an an update I checked on um we've been praying for John's grandson John Timmerman's grandson Barrett and uh He's been doing well. He's out of the hospital. Um, has been actually been able to get a little fresh air, and uh, what a blessing that uh, that God is providing for him and uh, and for Nathan and Bethany. So, with that, beloved, let's pray together. Oh Lord, our heavenly Father, your mercy toward us is greater than we can. Hell. You know the distractions that so often threaten to fill our hearts and our minds. The work that you've given us to do that can seem all encompassing. The disputes and disagreements that can threaten to overwhelm our view and fill our hearts. The bad news that seems to pour forth in an endless cycle, telling of political corruption, speaking of heartache and loss throughout our nation, declaring warfare in far lands that has significant impact in our own nation. Each of these things, Lord, threatens to overwhelm us, leading us to wring our hands and wonder, how long, O oh Lord, will you allow this ugliness? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow these this suffering? But then we turn anew to your word. And we are reminded that you are greater than all of them together. That there is nothing that comes to pass in this world that has not been ordained by you or that will not be used of you for the good of your people. And Father, we rejoice to know it. You have given us comfort that is greater than this world can snatch away. Encouragement that is infinitely greater than the discouragement of This world's sins and rebellions and hurts. Enable us, Father, to keep focused upon you. Remembering the works that you've done in the past, especially your works in Christ, to rescue us from our sin and from our world and from ourselves. Making us to be your beloved children, whom you have promised to never let anyone snatch away. That we might be reminded that though the world may shake and totter, though its leaders might threaten and boast, we are secure with you and your plan is certain to come to pass. Grant that we might be reminded through your promises that our future is amazing. And that all of these things, all of these heartaches, all of these threats will soon fall silent and be cast aside as Christ renews all things and demonstrates the fullness of His victory to a watching world. Enable us with with that confidence, with those promises, with that identity ringing in our ears, To then tackle the struggles and the strife. And the difficulty and the heartache of life. That we might do so with joy. With confidence. With the assured knowledge. That no matter what we face. You are on the throne. And you are working it for our good. Father we pray that. You would continue to raise up your church. As you are doing in Ventura. We pray that you would continue. Drawing forth. New believers there, discipling them, strengthening them, using the circumstances of their lives to show them the importance, the essential need that they have for your gospel and your spirit. We pray that you would bless Brother Colostian, that he might uh, proclaim your word faithfully and declare the fullness of that word, applying it to the hearts and the lives of your people. And Lord, we pray that you would raise up more works Where your word would be proclaimed, where your people would be gathered, where the name of Christ is spoken aloud, and your worship goes forth faithfully and continually. We pray, Father, that you would bless the churches already established throughout this nation, throughout this continent, throughout this world. Lord, we know that there are many places where your people gather this day, where they are In fear of their lives, where it is a very real possibility to them that the government could intervene in their worship services and send many of them to jail, where it is a very real threat that the government might be coming for them at work or on the street or in their homes to interrogate them, to harm them, to destroy their businesses, to destroy their finances, to, to tear apart their families because they dare to name the name of Christ. Father, grant that they might stand firm and confess boldly, that they might be protected from Satan's snares and from the evil one's plans, and that through their boldly spoken word, your people, your elect might be drawn And those who began as your enemies might turn and through faith become your children. Lord, only you could work that, only you could bring that about. And we know that you are the one who is able to take heartache and pain and suffering and turn it for the good of your people. We pray that you would do that in the many places of suffering in this world. We think of the war in Ukraine where so many are displaced and where so many livelihoods have been destroyed and where there's a constant threat of warfare and and physical death. Grant that your people might have confidence and security knowing that the worst this world can do would bring them into the best man can experience in the presence of our Savior. Make them to be bold in proclaiming the truth and giving hope and encouragement to those who lack it. Likewise in Turkey and Syria as they seek to recover from these earthquakes that level the cities that have left countless thousands homeless, that have brought thousands to their death, and plunged their families into mourning. Lord, grant that they might receive the comfort that comes only through the gospel. And that through the gospel, though having lost so much of earthly treasure, they might gain the treasure that can never be taken away. Likewise for those who have suffered recently, Lord, with uh, tornadoes in our country. For those in Little Rock, for those in the small towns of Mississippi, for those in Illinois and really throughout the Midwest who have been afflicted by tornadoes this past weekend and over the past week. We ask that you would comfort and strengthen and provide but most of all we pray that through their weakness and their suffering they might find the the hope that transcends this life. They might find confidence in you to provide for them body and soul in this life and unto the next. Lord, we pray for those who grieve. Throughout our nation, there are many who grieve, from the school shooting in Nashville to other acts of violence that have swept the nation. Father, we pray that we pray that you would turn even this a beneficial end that though they grieve at the death the destruction the instability of our age that they might see in that the ugliness of sin and the desperate need that we have for your help and we pray lord that you would raise up your church in the face of all of these crises and struggles to show them that there is a hope that transcends it all There is a hope that is greater than all that would bring us low. And that hope is centered in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have given us that hope, that confidence. And we pray that you would enable us to keep our eyes upon that hope, cause us to delight in your word, to rejoice in your worship to celebrate the communion of the saints and through that communion, both formally as we worship but also informally as we live together and work together and, and weep together and celebrate together, that we might be reminded that you are great, that you are far greater than cancer or grief or injuries, that you are greater than the disagreements that sometimes tear us apart that you are greater Lord than anything this world holds Father we pray that you would provide healing and strength for those who suffer and that you would use our testimony of how you have delivered to encourage those who are longing for deliverance Lord we thank you for the the healing that you have provided for so many for Barrett that he might be able to get out and enjoy the start of the spring weather and the joy of his parents' home. For Jim, as he recovers from his bone marrow transplant and and is able to get out of the hospital and, and recover in the comfort of a place not institutional. For Linda and Bruce that they might be able to head for home, rejoicing at the successful surgery that Linda has experienced. Lord, for so many others whose needs have been met, whose blessing, or who have experienced such blessing, we pray that you would continue to strengthen and bless and encourage those who are brought low by disease, by illness, by depression, by anxiety, by so many other things that this world holds. Lord, grant that we might see that you are the comfort we need, that you are always with us and that no matter what, you will turn it for our good as we look to you in Christ. We pray that you would be with our members who are distant from us, that you would strengthen and bless them, those who are distant for their schooling, those who have moved away, those who are uh, serving, we think of Peter serving in the army and um, Greta and Austin both living distantly we think of the Reubing boys in college Lord we ask that and Joanna and Sue Falls Lord we ask that you would bless each of them and cause them to find their hope their strength their encouragement in you and grant that we might be a part of that. Lord, teach us to so love one another whether distant or nearby that we might see when our brother or our sister is brought low and remind them of the sure promises of your word and embrace them with an expression of your love. And so Lord, we ask that you would Use the church to minister to and build up one another. And bless the word that is proclaimed this night. That through it we we might be strengthened, our discipleship encouraged. That we might be drawn closer and closer unto you. Father, we pray all of this now. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, As we prepare to look to God's word together... um, Let's stand and sing the second stanza of Psalm 119 that we read. We can find that in selection 243 of our Blue Psalter hymnal. Number 243, we'll sing all the stanzas. this evening we look together to the truth of God's Word as it is summarized for us in Lord's Day 30 of our catechism. Uh, But first I'd like to read with you two brief passages that relate to this. Our uh, catechism selection wraps up uh, our teaching on the Lord's Supper, specifically focusing on our calling to partake of the Lord's Supper in a particular way with particular concerns. And uh, there are two passages that I think um, particularly highlight this. The first being from Luke 6, verses 20 through 26, and then we're going to look at a portion of 1 Corinthians 11. Now, Luke 6, Jesus is speaking to the crowd, speaking to his disciples Beginning in verse 20, we read, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Sober words. But then, turning to 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 27, we find, uh, if I can say so, even more sober words related directly, specifically to the Lord's Supper. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, turning to Lord's Day 30 in our catechism, looking specifically at questions 81 and 82, we are asked, first of all, who should come to the Lord's table? The answer is those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And also who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, God has filled this world with blessings for us to enjoy. It can be a true delight to experience even to explore those blessings. However, what one person receives as a blessing may be regarded as something less than desirable for others. I love, for instance, I love the taste of homemade bread. Matter of fact, we can't leave it out too long. It'll disappear. But for someone with a gluten allergy, it would be a less delightful pleasure. Some of us, many of us, I think, smile at the smell of a fresh-cut hayfield. But for someone who suffers certain allergies, it's not pleasant. You might find great satisfaction in times of vigorous exercise. But for someone with, with heart disease, well, they can't enjoy that particular pleasure. What can be a blessing for some, others must steadfastly avoid lest they suffer. And that certainly is the case with the Lord's Supper. Over the past few weeks, we've seen that the Lord's Supper was given to be a rich blessing to the people of God. A blessing from God Himself. Lord's Day 28 showed us that this is a, it was given as a beautiful visual aid of the heart of our faith. It allows us to actually see a, a demonstration of the sacrifice that was given on our behalf By the touching, the smelling, the tasting of it, it personalizes our unity with Christ. And then Lord's Day 29 shows us that more than simply teaching us, it strengthens us by drawing us into the heart of our hope. It enables us to see how our hope is completely embodied in Christ and how we share in Christ's saving work along with all of those who trust in Him. And it assures us that 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 hope that we have was completed on the cross. There's nothing for us to add. So truly, this sacrament is a source of encouragement, of of spiritual nourishment for the people of God. But it's not for everyone. The Supper does not provide those benefits mechanically. As though simply by partaking you're guaranteed to be blessed through the sacrament. In fact, if you partake in that way, it won't be a blessing. It'll be a curse. No, you have to come with faith. You have to come with understanding. You have to come having been prepared to partake a rite. Otherwise, what is meant for blessing becomes a curse. And that's what this portion of our catechism is emphasizing for us. That the Lord's Supper nourishes... Spiritually, deeply, essentially nourishes those who crave the living bread of Christ. So that's our theme this evening. The Lord's Supper nourishes those who crave the living bread. And we see that first of all as we consider how the sacrament feeds those who know their hunger. Our reading from 1 Corinthians 11 gives us a, a clear calling to examine ourselves before partaking, which we heard this morning in our reading of the preparatory form for the Lord's Supper. But we need to understand the background of that. You know, I grew up in a church where we never talked about examining ourselves. We never heard, we never heard there was a warning that one should beware how they partake, how one partakes of the supper. Never, I don't think I ever heard 1 Corinthians 11. nor had the church in Corinth. And that was a problem. See, this church was a divided church, which is not unusual. It was divided for a number of reasons. It was divided ethnically, many of the members being Jewish in their background, others being a variety of Gentiles, And that caused division within their midst. They were divided theologically. Some really being devoted to the preaching of Paul. Others being really devoted to the preaching of Apollos. Others, you get the idea, right? You know, they they were divided theologically among their different favorite teachers. And they were divided socially between those of the upper stratus, those who were rich or those who were powerful and those who weren't. And those divisions manifested themselves as they almost certainly must, especially the way they partook of the Lord's Supper. See, they didn't, they didn't have these neat little thimblefuls of wine and, and pre-cut up pieces of bread. They, uh, they partook in one of two ways. Either coming forward to the, the front and partaking um, one at a time or more likely most of the ancient churches they partook around a table as many as could fit around the table at a time sometimes all of them together but because of their divisiveness and because of the pride bound up with that it manifested itself in the celebration of the supper such that some came forward quickly feeling themselves more worthy to partake than those folks And they weren't shy about taking a healthy portion of the bread. A pretty good swallow of the wine. So that those who came last, when they finally got there, they found very little left. With which to be strengthened. To be spiritually nourished. It was a sinful behavior. A sinful divisiveness. Really a perversion of the sacrament. And so Paul begs the church, don't persist in partaking divisively, but instead let each person examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In fact, Paul says such a self-examination is absolutely necessary for the church. In Corinth, they were enduring judgment because of their divisive sin. The church was fracturing so that their hatred was, was causing their worship to be corrupted. Individuals were being stricken with physical sickness because they were partaking in this manner. Some had even died, a consequence of God's wrath. The solution, Paul said, was quite simple. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Self-examination would enable the Christians of Corinth to come to the Lord's table in the right manner, with the right attitude, focused not on their divisions, focused not on their party, but focused on Christ. And on how He unites us with the Lord and with one another. But it starts with self-examination. But how? What questions must Christians ask themselves in order to approach the table aright? Well, Jesus gives us excellent guidance in the reading that we had from Luke 6. Much like Psalm 1, this set of beatitudes gives us the picture of two different kinds of people. Those who are blessed on the one hand, those who are walking in the way of faith and and in the way of Christ-likeness, and those who are not and who therefore are cursed. Now, verses 23 describe the blessed one. And in the process, allow us to see the character that we should hope to find, that we should seek to find in ourselves. Notice that. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's not talking about having nothing in your bank account. No, he's talking about those who recognize that they don't have what they need. Were they to approach God on the merits of what they have accomplished, they would be without hope and without help. They're poor. They need what someone else, namely Christ, can offer because they can't do it on their own. They're poor. They're poverty-stricken. They can't do what God demands, what God requires. They need His help. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Not only are they unable to provide for themselves But they long for what Christ can provide. They long for what they see on the Lord's table. They long for the the spiritual food that is the broken body of Christ. They long for the spiritual drink that is his poured out blood that nourishes them unto eternal life. And he says, if you hunger that way, then you will be filled. And blessed are you who weep now. Not that sadness is inherently a blessing. But they weep over their sin. They weep over their Rebellion. They weep over their remaining imperfections and rebellions within themselves. They weep because they know they were made to be holy. They were made to honor God and they're not. And so they grieve at their sin. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. In other words, people look on them and they hate them. Not justly. Not because, you know, I hate you because you've done evil to me. They hate them on the account of the Son of Man. They look at these people and they see they're different. They don't live for the moment. They don't live for the thrill. They don't live for their own reputation or their pride or their name or their business. They live for Christ. They live for God. They live for holiness. The world hates that because it condemns them. Not that we're aiming to condemn them. But when they see Christ in us, that afflicts their conscience and they can't stand it. They seek to drag you down to their level. These are the characteristics. These are the qualities that we should long to find in ourselves. And therefore, these are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Do I recognize myself as poor? That is, do I see that I am utterly unable to contribute to my own salvation? Am I I resting in Christ and in Him alone? Do I hunger for something more? Something more than the struggle against sin? Something more than the brokenness of this world? Do I long? Do I hunger for the holiness and the goodness of God? And do I weep? for the misery that my sin has caused? Do I weep for the dysfunction and the struggle that I have brought by my sin? And do people recognize Christ in me? Am I seeking to live my life in a way that they see? Or am I keeping my faith to myself, fitting in with the unbelievers and demonstrating a lack of gratitude to God? Break it down further. Sin, salvation, service. Kids, this is the questions we ask as we prepare to come to the table. Sin, do I grieve my sin? Salvation, do I trust in Christ alone, not at all in myself? Service, am I resolved to live a life that demonstrates my gratitude to Christ? Make no mistake, those are hard questions to ask. Because we know that we're certain to fall short. We fear that we might not like what we see. That, that Asking those questions might leave us embarrassed before God. And so we're tempted to not ask. But listen. Not asking the questions because we might not like what we see... ...is like refusing to go to the dentist... ...even though your teeth ache... ...because you think that might be bad, what they find. Well listen, if your teeth are already starting to hurt... They're going to find something. But the longer you wait, the worse it is. And the worse the treatment's going to be. So don't be silly. Just go to the dentist. Figure out figure out what they're going to find. And get the treatment. And likewise with our souls. We need to ask the question. We need to see what the situation of our souls is. And then we need to respond. But not asking isn't an option. What if you fall short? What if I fail the test? What if I find that I'm not grieving my sin? That I'm not really trusting in Christ? Or that my life is really functionally no different than the people around me? What then? Fine, that just means that you know that you have the problem. The problem was there all along. Now you know it. Now you can do something about it. Listen to what Jesus says to us in John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, seeing that you're falling short, seeing that the answers to those questions humbles you, turn to Christ and in him you will have everything you need. Turn to Christ and he will teach you to humble yourself because of your sin. Turn to Christ and he will teach you that there's nothing you need to add to what he has done. Turn to Christ and he will teach you, if you love me, keep my commandments. And here is what my commandments are. Here is what your life of gratitude should look like. And then having turned to the Savior, heed the call of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 tells us that having sought Jesus by faith, Jesus we assuredly will receive. And with Him we will gain the satisfaction for our sin that He accomplished on the cross. We will gain the righteousness that His perfect obedience earned. We will gain the holiness that was His in truth and is attributed to us by faith. And so by faith faith we will be able to heed the call. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And he is faithful. So having trusted in Him, having sought from Him what we need, we can come to the Lord's table with confidence. We can come with absolute assurance that He will receive us for the sake of what Jesus has done. But what if we don't examine ourselves? Or what if we won't? What then? Well, we're warned. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 21 and 22, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? In other words, Jesus won't turn a blind eye to us coming hypocritically. He won't simply shrug and say, eh, it's okay if we come not truly trusting in Christ or not really repenting of our sins or not honestly resolving to live a life of gratitude. And so our second and final point is that while the Lord's Supper feeds those who know their hunger, it also afflicts those who despise their host. We need to think long and hard on the words of warning found in 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Folks, that is to partake of the Lord's Supper without the humility that arises from recognizing the ugliness and the affront of our sin. It is to approach the table of the Lord without the faith that looks only and entirely unto Christ. It is to draw near to the sacrament with no recognition of our indebtedness, with no sense of gratitude for the sacrifice of Christ. Those who approach the sacrament with such an attitude will not be blessed by the Lord's Supper, but instead will be cursed because they're making a mockery of what Christ has done. They're participating simply as a tradition, or worse, in the pride of thinking that they're somehow worthy of it. And how significant must be the punishment of such a proud and ugly sin. More than that, verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean, to eat and drink without discerning the body? In part, in part, I think that... Indicates that you're partaking thoughtlessly. It's a tradition. It's just what we do. Not recognizing that that blood is a or that that bread is a depiction of Jesus being broken and destroyed upon the cross. That that wine. is a symbolic embodiment of his lifeblood pouring out to cover over our sins. To take up those elements, those images, thoughtlessly, without our hearts bursting with gratitude. How ugly that is. And how can we do that? How can we take that up thoughtlessly without without it cursing us, right? But it's more than that. Because consistently in this book of 1 Corinthians, we are told that the church is the body of Christ. And that really is the heart of the sin that they were committing in their division in partaking wrongly of the Lord's Supper. They were coming forward and partaking without any thought to their brothers and sisters, without any unity with the body of Christ, which is the church. They were taking a good long swig of the wine, not thinking about the dozens of people behind them. They were taking a big hunk of bread, not worrying if there would be enough for their brothers and sisters behind them. To eat and drink without discerning the body. Is to partake of the Lord's Supper as though it's only about me and Jesus, and not about me and Jesus and all of those others who are in Jesus who are now one with me. To eat and drink without discerning the body is to partake of the sacrament without having any concern about the fractured relationship you have with a brother or sister in Christ, which you've not sought to remedy through reconciliation. To eat and drink without discerning the body is to come with absolutely no care for the brother, for the sister who is in need, whom you've ignored. To do that is to partake unto your own judgment, Paul says. Because those folks you ignored, God loves Those folks whom you are content to reject, Christ died for them. Those folks about whom you've spoken ill, Christ sent His Spirit to transform and renew them. To scorn the body of Christ is a grave offense because the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. Can we speak ill of, think ill of, act untoward with regard to the bride of Christ? and not suffer for it? Paul warned the church in Corinth that such behavior was dangerous. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God struck them with physical illness because of their sin. He sent some to the grave, the death penalty, and yet even that was merely a foretaste of the greater judgment they would experience eternally because of their scorning of Christ. Now that sounds harsh, but folks, we ought to expect that. In Hebrews 10, we're warned that If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but a fearful judgment or expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The Lord's Supper is not for those who are immature. Why is it that we don't open the table to our children, to our young ones? It's because that which blesses us so richly can also curse us quite deeply if we do so, if we partake of it unthinkingly, uncaringly, without discernment. If we don't recognize our need, if we come without recognizing our hurt, that is not the hurt we've felt, but the hurt we've brought. We can eat and drink judgment to ourselves. And In Hebrews 10, he warns us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We must not do that. And so, as a matter of protecting those who are immature in the faith, or those who are immature of age, we don't allow them to partake. We guard them against harming themselves. But you who are not yet professing members don't take that as an excuse. I don't have to worry about this. No! You should long for the rich blessing that the Lord's Supper brings you. You should long for that day when you can partake. And to that end, you should be praying for discernment. You should be praying for maturity. And you should be examining yourself already so that on that day, you can make a good testimony before the the elders. You can demonstrate the maturity you've been given and you can partake with a clear conscience knowing that you're resting fully in Christ, knowing that you are properly discerning the body of Christ. So let us long for that day. Let us be eager for that time. But notice what Jesus says about those who won't. Those who come lightly. Woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Again, this isn't just about a physical riches. Riches. This is those who feel satisfied in themselves. I have what I need. I don't need anything more. I'm good. I'm pretty good. I think I look at other people and and I see how they behave. I think I'm doing all right. You've received your consolation, he says, and woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You think I have what I need. I'm good. Right? Right? I'm satisfied with the life I have. I'm satisfied with the behavior I have. He says you will hunger because you will miss out on the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. And woe to you who laugh now. Not that laughter is wrong. It's not. But when we, in this context, he's talking about laughing at our sin. Laughing at our circumstance. Laughing at the misery into which Adam has plunged us. We dare not laugh at that. We should weep at that. But if we laugh now at that, if we laugh at our sin, if we laugh at our rebellion, then we will grieve at the glory that we will miss. And woe to you when people speak well of you. What's wrong with that? Why wouldn't wouldn't I want them to speak well of me? Well, if, if we're talking about people at large, people of the world, if they speak well of you, they recognize you as one of them. They recognize that you are not different, that you fit in with them in their worldliness, in their sin, in their rebellion. There's nothing about your behavior that makes them uncomfortable, that afflicts their conscience. And therefore, woe to you! Because you are not living a life of gratitude. You are not living a life of godliness. If this is the judgment of our lives, of our hearts, woe to us! But far worse if we're not even willing to discern it. How many are they who never ask the question? Who never examine their hearts? Living as unbelievers of the world live. Thinking as do those who reject God. Loving according to the heart of a rebel. And yet content in knowing that, well, you know, I'm a member of a church. I know all the right things. I'm good to go. But they're not. And their lives are a testimony that they're not okay. And therefore, the church itself is called to restrain them from the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, the elders, they can't know the heart of a person. But they can see the hands. And if their hands... Testify that they are rich in their own eyes that they are full and see no need that they are laughing as they embrace sin that they fit in with an unbelieving world if that's what their hands testify then for their own sake for their own good to protect them but also for the sake of the church the elders must restrain them through discipline why? because if we don't then we are complicit in their sin if we don't then we are with them scorning the supper of the Lord and this we must not do so we restrain them think of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote strong words in 1 Corinthians 5 for a good reason. There was a man there who was living in a way that even the Gentiles, even those outside the church were going, really? Whew, okay. But the church was turning a blind eye to it. They were proud even that they were so tolerant of such a person. Does that sound familiar? The old is new again. Oh, we're so tolerant. Anyone's welcome. Love is love. Paul said no love of that which is wicked is hatred toward God and you're bringing scorn of God judgment from God upon the whole church and so he tells them cast him out not because you hate him but because you love God Not because you hate him, but because you long to see him turn from his sin and come back to Christ. Not because you hate him, but because you don't want to see him burn in hell because of his presumption. 1 Corinthians 5, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside? It is not... Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil one from among you. We do that to honor God. Show that we're not taking lightly sin, but we do it also for their well-being, that they might see that this is the significance of your sin. As long as you're embracing that rebellion, you're turning away from the Lord. It's one or the other. You can either live content at your sin, laughing at your sin, fitting in with the world, or you can grieve your sin. You can hunger for what is more. You can be poor in the eyes of the Lord and seek Christ, one or the other. But as long as you're laughing, as long as you're full, as long as you're satisfied in your sin, you may not partake of that which demonstrates you are one with Christ. But wait, the world says, wait, so many in the church say, What about judge not lest ye be judged? Well, Matthew 7, he's not saying don't judge at all. He's saying don't judge hypocritically. Take the log out of your own eye before you focus on your brother's speck. But having removed that log, then he says, take note of his speck and help him get it out. He doesn't say don't judge. He says don't judge hypocritically. Because not only they, but we must repent together and come before the Lord humbly. But what if you're the one who's been restrained? What if you're the one who has refused to see your sin? Church discipline doesn't start with two elders knocking on your door. It starts with one brother, with one sister coming to you and saying, I have real concerns with what I'm seeing in your hands, with what I'm seeing in your life. I heard what you said about so-and-so. I heard what you did... What if you're the straying lamb? Do not despair. If you're the one whose behavior has been that described by Jesus in Luke 6, you who are rich, you who are full, you who laugh, you who are spoken well of by the world, Don't despair. But instead, humble yourself and turn to Christ. John 6, Jesus himself says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So believe him. Turn to him. Confess your sin, your failure, your shortcoming. Ask for what He alone can provide and then believe Him. And begin grieving over your sin. Begin hungering for what He alone can provide. Begin daily confessing that your hope and your strength and your help are found in Christ alone. And begin conforming your life to His Word by means of the Spirit's power. And then having turned, recall that for you, Christ offers his blessing, his love, his life. To us, to us, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. And believing that word of assurance, draw near. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body washed with pure water. And hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. And we come to his table not because of what we've done or what we've earned but because what he earned for us. As we Prepare to partake of the sacrament on Friday. Let each one examine himself honestly. And no matter what he finds or she finds, embrace Christ wholeheartedly. And having done so, let us partake eagerly by faith of Christ, the living bread in whom we live both now and evermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we fall short. Every one of us. Every one of us has sins of which we are ashamed. Every one of us too often laughs at the Rebellion we've embraced. Too seldom do we think on the desperate need we have for Christ and our lives do not testify like they should that we belong to you. Not yet. But you're at work in us. And that causes us to rejoice. Rejoice. Enable us to rely more fully upon you. Convict us, Lord, of the ugliness of our sin that we might weep over it. Fill us with a longing for what Christ alone can provide and with a confidence that rests in him alone. And then overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus has done. Cause us to devote our lives as an offering of gratitude unto him. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let us stand and sing together. Number 420, come for the feast is spread. Number 420. Our offering this evening is for the Christian Education Fund. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us, in the knowledge of yourself, the foundation for all knowledge. We pray that you would bless our offering this evening to promote that understanding in our children. We pray for all of our children in their education that your word might be the bedrock on which they stand that faith in Christ might be the key that unlocks all the rest. And we pray that you would cause this offering that we bring to bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our offering song this evening is number 378, I Know Not Why God's Wondrous Grace.